This is Scott. This is Rebecca. And we're the CEOs of Hardy, Party of Five. And a half. It's not really a company, it just sounds cool. And if you're looking for a normal family, well, you've certainly come to the wrong place. So keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and let's see where this roller coaster takes us. Welcome to what we consider a very special episode of Hardy Party Five and a Half. You know, all of the social unrest around us has been kind of heavy on our hearts and it got us to thinking about something we experienced last summer. Yeah, last summer we went to Tony Evans Church Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. It's in Dallas, Texas, and it's a predominantly African-American church, very large congregation. He did a thing on Wednesday nights called Hot Topics, Mm -hmm. Cultural Wars, I think was the tagline there. And the first two were on politics, the second two weeks were on race, and the last two weeks were on sexuality. So the the way the format was, it basically you sat there and listened to him with a Q&A, a microphone. He sat on a stool and had people texting questions, just ask and have conversations. But he really wasn't preaching. He was just kind of answering questions that were texted in. Kind of getting a conversation started. Right. And then when we were done with that, after about an hour, we he said, go outside, grab some food. He had some food trucks lined up outside. And then we ended up in the fellowship hall. And he said, go sit at a table with someone who doesn't think like you or look like you and have a good conversation. And we just agreed to really love this format. And we sat at a table and had a couple of people come sit at the table with us, two different couples. In fact, one of the couples were Larry and Valencia Turrentine. Yeah, and we became fast friends. Larry was even on the launch team for my book, Trophy of God's Grace. I just remember him coming back with pages of constructive criticism and encouragement, and it just made me realize how thoughtful he was as a person. Right. Then later, we met them for dinner with a couple of their other closest friends. We just felt like Larry could offer some insight into what's happening in today's culture, and he's just kind enough to join us on the phone today. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Larry Turrentine. Um, you know Scott because you guys met at a church event somewhat a while back last year, last summer, actually. And you guys just became fast friends. So we appreciate you being on. And, and for me, Larry, I just appreciate your friendship to Scott because I know that you've read his book. You wrote a little blurb for it. And I just he talks and speaks so highly of you. And I love that you have just invested in him. And so I appreciate that about you. So I want you to tell us a little it's bit about all my pleasure, Rebecca. It's been all my pleasure. I've enjoyed the relationship that Scott and I have. I love it. I love hearing what he has to say about you and all your thoughts, and it's just been a great relationship. And you know what's funny? When we met y'all at the table, I'm like, I'm going to hang out with this guy. I just had that feeling. Like, you were kind of laid back and cool, so I was like, I like this guy. And my thought was... Well, I appreciate that. (laughs) My thought was... Valencia is beautiful. That is your wife. She is like the most beautiful person I think I've ever looked at. Like I just look at her and I think she's so stunning and beautiful. So I don't get to. I I, I haven't got to know her as well as you and Scott have gotten to know each other. But maybe well, our time is coming. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. So tell us a little bit about like your your background. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Like give give us give us a little bit of history. Okay, thank you. And again, I appreciate this opportunity to just hang out with you all a little bit. Yeah. I grew up mainly in Lawton, Oklahoma. My dad was a soldier who retired from the military after 22 years of service. Hmm. He had a couple of tours in Vietnam and also a tour in the Korean War, so he was definitely a soldier. Actually, my mother stayed home raising us four kids. Uh, I'm the oldest of four. I have three sisters. My mom actually worked as a domestic in Lawton. 
Lando, Oklahoma. We spent time in Savannah, Georgia. We spent time in Hickam Field in Honolulu, Hawaii. Oh, also yeah. a little bit of time in Arkansas. Okay. I graduated from high school in Lawton, Oklahoma. Went to the military academy at West Point. Spent seven years in the Army. Uh, after that, I got out of the Army, spent 17 years as a pharmaceutical salesman and a district manager with Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. A downsizing brought me to Texas. I became a financial advisor, spent the last 12 years with Wells Fargo Advisors, Fidelity Investments, and Charles Schwab as a financial advisor. Currently attend Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, which is where Scott and I met. Been there about 13 years. Oh, wow. Um, I'm a deacon over there, married to Valencia that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. She's from Houston. Uh, she is in the industry, insurance industry. We have three grown kids. One graduated from the University of Missouri, my daughter, uh, son from Lamar University down in Beaumont, and my other son graduated from the military academy also at West Point. So that's right. a little bit about me. That's awesome. <laughs> that's a lot of it about you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. Right. Yeah, that's great. And didn't Valencia, her, did she, was her son that went to Oklahoma State? Yes, exactly. He went to Oklahoma State on a football scholarship. He okay. was there for, I guess, the better part of two years, uh, but he wasn't playing as much as he wanted to play. Uh -huh. And as a result, he decided he was going to transfer. And he did go up, go down to Lamar University oh, okay. and finish his career that. out there. Okay. But yeah, cool. he had a couple of years at Oklahoma State, the Cowboys. Okay. All right. Go Pokes. I know you say yeah. Boomer Center. <laughs> Boomer Center. <laughs> but we can still be friends. <laughs> we are definitely no still problem. friends. No problem. No problem at all. We're all Big 12 in Oklahoma. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So we're going to get into a little bit of conversation about race and race relations. And, again, we appreciate you being willing to, willing to just share with us um, your thoughts and you and Scott to be able to bounce things off of each other. So what do you really think that there is systematic racism? What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Yeah, that's a, a very good question, and I think it's a complicated question also. Many people on the right, and when I say on the right, I'm talking people like local Texas politicians, John Carnan, uh, Ted Cruz, and there are a lot of prominent blacks also, Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams, who are prominent black economists. They would deny that there is such a thing as systemic racism. On the contrary, many on the left disagree. Uh, the left kind of pushes back and says this is a big issue and has been for a long time. All seem to agree that from 1619, which was the inception of the American slavery uh, industry, when blacks first came over here as, as slaves from Africa, until from 1619 until the Civil Rights era, which was what, the mid-1960s, that it was a thing. I think everybody pretty much agrees with that. But I think most of the right thinks that after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and that series of legislation that legalized discrimination was wiped away. I think that's the point, so that's the, that's the side that they hold on to. However, managers can no longer discriminate in hiring supposedly after this legalized discrimination was wiped away, was wiped off the books. Loan officers couldn't discriminate in bank lending. 
landlords couldn't discriminate in housing and property issues. Uh, the same applied to real estate agents. They couldn't redline. Police officers supposedly were no longer able to profile and do things such as that that were clearly discriminatory. And prosecutors and judges also could no longer follow their formal way of practice. To answer the question, uh, 50 years have passed since then, since that civil rights activity legislation. And there are still significant differences in the unemployment rate and the net worth between blacks and whites, mm -hmm. the educational outcomes and income, and in where we live. So my own opinion is that racism is as common as burping, <laughs> a little bit less common than sin. And I frankly believe that most of us are raised with some of that that rubs off from our family and friends. So I believe that racial, racial bias is common. Uh, in some ways, I think it's in the DNA of America. Yeah. But your question is, does it rise to the level of systemic racism? Well, I believe that many blacks have broken through the proverbial glass ceiling. Of course, we can name a bunch. Barack Obama, Ben Carson, Oprah Winfrey, Clarence Thomas, Michael Jordan, Beyonce, list goes on and on. Condoleezza Rice, many athletes, many entertainers. Uh, they've reached the pinnacle of success, both relation, I'm sorry, reputation-wise and money-wise. Yeah. So we've come a long way. There's no doubt about that. But I think we still have a long way to go. If you think about it, Jesus in Matthew 25 and 40 or thereabouts talks about the least of these. And I submit to you that the lot of the least of these in America has not changed much over the past 50 years. Huh. You can go to sections of Chicago, Baltimore, Milwaukee. You can go to Dallas, Fort Worth in sections. And you can see many other places in the nation, and you can still see segregation in housing, segregation in schools, segregation in technology, and segregation in, in tax dollars. And you'll soon realize that Lyndon Bain Johnson's Great Society didn't really work out like it was supposed to. There's still much injustice and racism that has not disappeared. So I would suggest that if you were to ask most of the least of these, as I said, they could probably describe the feeling of still having a knee on their neck, so to speak. Yeah. So in my opinion, racism and oppression have not taken a holiday and they're still with us. Hmm. Whether you call it systemic or not, yeah. we've still got issues. Well, yeah, and so, I, um, just that's using, how I feel about that. Just using the term systemic, I think we we kind of institu institutionalize it. Like you talked about, you know, the laws have changed and all that, but that doesn't necessarily change hearts. So, right, exactly. It, I think that's the key. Hearts yeah. need to change. Until they change, there's still going to be a lot of racism and injustice and those types of things that are still going to be injected into the system and we're not going to make a whole lot of progress as a culture and society, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's like you mentioned, it's families and it's what your parents and grandparents, how how they saw life and how that affected how you look at it. And I think it's, it, to me, it's more where there, it, it is institutionalized. I think it just comes from families and just how we look at life right? in exactly. a lot of respects. Yeah, like I said, I think it's part of a lot of our DNA. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, do you so in the same token, do you, what do you make of white privilege? 
white privilege. Again, you all ask some very good <laughs> questions. Uh, when we talk about white privilege, um, uh, several things come to my mind. First, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I think her name was Amy Cooper, was in Central Park. Yeah. She called the cops and complained about being threatened by a black man. Oh, yeah. To me, that was a dog whistle. That was clearly a dog whistle. She knew with the right words that she could get cops there on the double. Right. In that situation, I thought she was using her privilege. And not only did she use it, but she weaponized that Mm. privilege. Yeah. In other instances, I know most hiring research suggests that managers hire people like themselves. So if most managers are senior level and down are white, then generally the white person might have an advantage if the resumes are equal over a black person because of that white advantage or that white privilege. So I think part of the privilege of being in power, uh, part of that privilege of of, of just being a certain color, I think a lot of people take advantage of that if they can. I recall a personal situation. I remember back in 1998, I was an assistant to the regional manager in Dallas with Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Our regional managers and our district managers won a trip to New York City at Christmas time. It was basically for stellar sales. It was to go up there for about a week and just enjoy the city uh, during the Christmas time. Yeah. It was one perk that we got of uh, being successful. So we went up to Bloomingdale's as a, as the prize, like I said, in New York City. A group of probably, I don't know, 20 of us, mid-level managers. So one morning, we went to Bloomingdale's early. I think the store probably opened about 9 o'clock a.m. We were allowed to go in there at 8 o'clock to kind of beat the rush. Yeah. And as a result, uh, they let us in. We went in and started shopping. I, like I said, was the only black, to my recollection, at that time with the group. We, like I said, we were allowed early access. So we shopped. I shopped about, I don't know, maybe two hours. So by this time, it was maybe 10, 1030 or so. I went back, got my overcoat, and began to walk out. I was asked by a gentleman who was in plain clothes to step aside, to stop, and, you know, he beckoned me and asked me to come there, and I was kind of wondering to myself what's going on here. I later learned it was a plain clothes cop. Yeah. He was in charge of security and of basically catching shoplifters. I was detained in a cell in the store for about an hour because they thought I had stolen my overcoat. Oh, my God. Apparently, the cop had seen me walking around the store. Yeah. This was after 9 o'clock without the coat. And again, when he saw me again, he saw me with the coat as I got ready to walk out. Yeah. So he accosted me and stopped me. They took me upstairs. Actually, they have little holding cells. They do? I was detained for about (laughs) 30 minutes to an hour until I told them who to call, you know, my, the Pfizer official people and the people who were sponsoring the trip and so on and so forth. And uh, we finally got it straightened out. But funny, for, funny, for whatever reason, I was the only one who was stopped yeah. and I was actually put in a cell. Now, my white That's, counterparts yeah. had that privilege of being white that I didn't have. Right. I don't know how else I would explain 
that type of situation that he had actually watched me and followed me and then pinpointed me when he thought I had taken that coat. Hmm. You know, um, throughout black history, there have been uh, some of us who have been very light-skinned with very little melanin in our systems. Yeah. Those people were said to pass. That is, we have a whole group of people who were light-skinned black people, but they were light enough to appear white. Those people passed or wanted to pass because they thought that they were getting what is known as white privilege. So I believe that white privilege mm-hmm. does exist. And as last example, I'd just like to point out, and you all probably remember 12-year-old Tamir Rice in Cleveland. Uh, November the 22nd, 2014 or thereabouts, he was a, a, a black kid playing in a park. Apparently someone not too far away saw him playing there, but he was playing with a toy gun. Uh, they called the cops and told the cops that somebody was there with a toy gun or a toy rifle. As a result, the cops came out, and without within three minutes or so, Tamir Rice was no longer with us. Mm-hmm. I believe that if that kid, that 12-year-old kid, had been white, he would have had that opportunity to execute white privilege, and as a result, he would still be with us. Yeah. Again, he didn't receive the benefit of a doubt. So I think white privilege is, is in fact a thing, and it's about getting the benefit of a doubt. Yeah, it's just the assumption that you're doing something wrong without right. even looking at the details or the evidence. Exactly. This That's reminds exactly how I feel about it. Yeah, I work with a producer. I do live events, and I have a producer I work with a lot. And she is African-American, and she lives in a like upper-class neighborhood. Her husband used to be in the NFL, and um, they have a really nice house, really nice neighborhood. She, she told me the other day that she had been stopped in her driveway at least five times by police, asking her why she's there, in her own driveway, asking her why she's there. And she's like, well, this is my home. <laughs> So, and that's. Oh, yeah, it happened. Yeah, she told me that like two weeks ago. So it's just, uh-huh. it's hard to believe. It really is. So, speaking, right. speaking of the 12 year old, did you teach your children anything about that when you were raising any of your kids? Like, for example, I was just telling a friend the other day, I've never told any one of my boys to put your license and your registration in the seat so you don't have to reach for it if you get pulled over while you're driving, like just as a regular thing to do. I've never taught them. I don't think I've ever said, keep your hands on the steering wheel. I've never had to go over these things with them. Is this something you taught your kids? Are there things that you implemented in them because of white privilege? Uh, Yes, it's not only me, but I think most uh, black parents have to tell their kids, and maybe not have to, but they do at some point in time tell them now, when a cop stops you, because it will happen, that you shouldn't make any sudden moves. You should be respectful. You should try to cooperate with him or her as best as you can and just don't make a ruckus, so to speak. Yeah. I think we have to have that because it seems like, unfortunately, there are some bad cops out there and some are trigger happy and some have some things brewing in their spirits that perhaps shouldn't be there that relate to injustice and racism. Yeah. Right. And it, all it takes is something to trigger them, 
and it can be a, a bad situation. So I've had to tell my kids that, and I'm sure most black parents have to tell their kids a similar thing. Yeah, like Rebecca, like you said, I never even crossed my mind to tell my kids that. Right. So you can tell there's right. a difference there for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about Black Lives Matters. That is um, a popular thing right now, hashtags and otherwise. Why Why is that the slogan instead of all lives matter? And what do you think about Black Lives Matter in general? Oh, you do have very good questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, Black Lives Matter. Okay. First, I'd just like to take a, a moment and separate the organization from the slogan. Yeah. Okay. The organization, which I am not a member of, has a platform. Personally, I do not support the platform. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I find it offensive to me as a Christian. And uh, if I'm talking to a, a person who is a member of Black Lives Matter, I'm generally asking why don't Black Lives Matter as it relates to abortion mills mm-hmm. or as it relates to the number of killings that we've seen, have seen in Chicago. Those are some of the questions I asked them. Now, like I said, separating the organization from the slogan itself. Right. And by the way, um, I heard some jokes about Black Lives Matter. I've heard some people call it burn, loot, and murder. Mm-hmm. Others okay. call it bowel leaky movement. But that's the yeah. other extreme, the people who you know, really think that they are a, a, a nefarious type organization. Yeah. But like I said, the slogan, I think, is what we have to concentrate on, not necessarily the organization. The slogan, in my estimation, is a cry for attention. Mm. Why does a baby cry? A baby cries because they want attention. It's a call, Black Lives Matter is simply, in my estimation, a call to focus on the plight of the black man. I often hear people innocently and innocuously apply or reply when you, when one says Black Lives Matter, they'll say, yeah, right, all lives matter. And I understand that. But I say to myself when I hear that, that you really don't get it. You just don't get what they're saying. The slogan is really about focus. It's not saying that all lives don't matter. It's not saying that at all. We believe all lives matter. I believe that the leadership in the organization Black Lives Matter also believe that all lives matter. But in the meantime, you have to, like I said, separate the organization and the slogan. I have to keep on coming back to that. Yeah. Because we have to, we're asking, the organization is asking, by the slogan, is asking us to look and focus on what's happening in the black in the black community, specifically right. with black lives. Imagine a day if uh, it was your birthday today, Rebecca, and Scott, I met you all coming out to celebrate uh, Rebecca's birthday. And I turned to Scott and I said, Scott, Happy birthday. <laughs> you two would look you two would look at me bewildered like it's not my birthday, it's her birthday. Yeah. But the point is is that I've had a I've I I've focused on the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Another example, if we agree to meet for breast cancer march with hundreds of others and we all have our pink on and our, you know, pink regalia and 
banners and all that stuff. And there's one person that shows up with a banner and says, let's stomp out prostate cancer. Now, everybody there wants to stomp out prostate cancer, but everybody there is also the focus on breast cancer. Yeah, the, so that person the events would, breast would cancer, typically so. be out of focus. So mm. the Black Lives Matter slogan, like I said, in my estimation, is really a, a way to focus on blacks. Unfortunately, um, non-blacks and everyone else for that matter has been dealing with COVID-19. COVID-19, yeah. of course, has doubled down on blacks. Blacks, however, had really been dealing with COVID-19, which is the year that slaves were brought to Virginia. We've had over 4,000 lynchings, uh, most happening during the Jim Crow era. We've had people like Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis cop, look into a camera and demonstrate by putting his knees on the neck of George Floyd that black lives doesn't matter. We've had the destruction of Black Wall Street in 1921. We've had the Red Summer of 1919. These situations have all shown, it's shown the world really, that black lives don't matter. Yeah. The Constitution has told us that we're all equal and black lives matter, but that hasn't played out. Doesn't seem to be the reality. So I just ask that those who believe that Black Lives Matter is a bad thing, that they would just forgive for a moment and understand that that slogan is a statement of focus. That's how I would answer that question. Yeah. yeah. And I really like how you talked about the organization versus the hashtag, because I think in this world of social media and stuff, we tend to just look at the surface level. We see this hashtag, and I think in our minds, we put that together automatically. When right, really, right. and I love how you separated that. This, the way what you were just talking about, reminded me of a book I recently read, "Slavery by Another Name." It's, uh -huh. it's by Douglas uh, Blackman. But it was recommended by Tony right. Evans. Yeah, it was Tony. Pastor Evans actually mentioned it in one of his uh, talks, so I went ahead and bought it and read it. And it's really talking about like what you're talking about, Jim Crow and all that. Like there was emancipation and Reconstruction started and. Actually, President Grant was doing a pretty good job with that, but then it just kind of, it all kind of fell apart. And within uh -huh. that, all this, the Southerners and all that, they used all these laws to kind of really enslave blacks again through the, right. through the law enforcement and all that and coming up with, you know, Trump charges and stuff that they really hadn't done. And just that shows you how it was, we were, we were making good steps and then it kind of all fell apart and just the racism came back into it so right right yep you're preaching to the choir yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh so black men are six percent of the population but account for 50 percent of crime is that a serious issue and how do you well, how do you think well, that plays out well well definitely i think it's a serious issue and my opinion that's a big problem and I'll be the first to admit that we have to clean up our own house, point blank. Some attribute crime to high poverty rates. I think it was Aristotle who said that poverty is the parent of revolution and crime. Social scientists have studied this issue for years. The contrarians point to situations like West Virginia, 
which typically has a high percentage of its population in poverty. However, they do not have a very high crime rate, comparatively speaking. So there's still, I think the jury is still out on, is it definitively a, a result of poverty? Yeah. Uh, however, we can point to dads not being in the home, the glorification of thug life, uh, single mothers, economic and employment, instability or instability, gang involvement. And I think each of these factors is combined with injustice and racism, and the result is not a pretty picture. I think there are many black communities who have churches on many of the corners in those communities. So in some ways, I don't know if the church has been as effective in preventing gangs, in combating food deserts, and in generally in morally uplifting the community. Mm. So at the end of the day, I think there are three fingers pointed back at ourselves. But also I would say that we haven't totally overcome the wake of slavery, meaning that when you take a boat out on the lake or ocean or river, wherever you take a boat out, the boat makes certain waves in its path. If you are in the, the pathway or if you are behind where those waves are happening or congregating, then you may feel some choppiness. You may feel some, some turbulence. And I think slavery has been that boat. It's led the way, but still there are some waves that are causing us black people to not be uh, as um, living up to the standards that Dr. King and others have called us to. So I think, again, that you know, we are not definitely without some blame and responsibility in those statistics. Hmm. Yeah. So, in light of in light of that, you know, knowing where you where you stand in that, where do you see these protests heading right now? Where do you think Where do you think we're headed with all the activity in the past month? Ah, oh, that's another good question. Um, I hate to say I don't know, but I don't know. I'd like to think. <laughs> There were, that we're headed in a positive direction. Um, right now, I know many of my friends, many blacks, many people are wondering, is this a moment or is this a movement? Mm. Yeah. Again, uh, my grandfather, Thomas, I think he was born in 1894 or so. He had uncles who were born into slavery. So we are not that far removed from slavery. Right. right, yeah. Both of my grandfathers, Thomas and Joe, were sharecroppers. And I can show you paperwork that shows that Joe, my mother's father, my grandfather, applied for welfare while he was a sharecropper, which is suggesting that sharecropping wasn't getting it done. Yeah. My mother was raised on welfare partially in some part of her life with a fully intact family, though, where, like I said, my fa my grandfather, her father was there in the home. My point is that in 1863, when blacks were freed, most had nowhere to go, mm -hmm. no money, no education to get there. And along comes General William Tecumseh Sherman, who like me as a fellow graduate of West Point, he promised 40 acres and a mule. But that promise was as empty 
as the Constitution's declaration that all men are created equal. Hmm. So future generations of blacks were denied a legacy of education, the fruits of their labor, land, and benefits for 250 years of time in America. That was a problem. Imagine, Scott, if you and I were running a 100-yard dash and you started 50 yards ahead of me and yeah. someone fired the starter's pistol and you heard it two seconds before me, who would get to the finish line first? I think that is how we should look at this situation of inequality that blacks are so far behind are still so far behind like i said before we've made great progress but still for the least of these there's still the least of these mm -hmm. yeah that's kind of how i would answer that question so now how do we like you're talking to two you know 50 year old white people we struggled with when that that one day that everybody was putting all the black picture just the black on their social media is yeah. black lives matter and we didn't uh -huh. do that scott and i neither one of us felt like we should do that but i was also burdened with um because because of the platform we talked about that a little bit of black lives matter and but we also mm -hmm. felt like what what is our role and is our silence really speaking is our silence really violence? You know, uh, what are we saying to our black friends by not posting on social media or just in general? Like, what is our role? Okay, well, let me speak to the issue of silence really being violence. I've heard that, and I have mixed emotions about that. Yeah. When I was in the military, we had a belief system that silence means consent. Hmm. In other words, if you don't speak up, you're in agreement. While there are many issues that people are not willing to fall on their swords and die for, there are just as many issues which have to be confronted if things are going to change. Right. So my point is simply that you have to pick your battles. That saying is applicable here. So if injustice is rampant and I say nothing, then in some levels I'm complicit. All four of the Minneapolis police officers were arrested and are being charged. Even only one of them actually put his neck physically on George Floyd's, on George Floyd's neck. As a result, though, like I said, the other three are going to have to pay a price of some sort, if nothing else, but uh, the, the negative publicity that they've already gotten. So while our silence on quote-unquote smaller issues, such as injustice, racism, hate, so on and so forth, are not captured on a cell phone video, they do add up, in my estimation, to a subtle violence. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the religious idea of a sin of omission. Sin of omission is simply failing to do what's right. I think with James 4 and maybe 17 in the Bible, says to one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, for him it is a sin. So violence is simply brutality. Violence is roughness. These are all synonymous words of violence. It's uh, savagery. It's cruelty. So I have to agree that in some respects, silence is a really subtle violence. So I would suggest if anyone feels like 
that they are not doing enough, that they really, you know, go to God and ask God, what am I to do? There are probably some practical things that you can do, but in the meantime, to get the heart right and to get that level of, I have to do something, then I think that's the, that's the first thing to go to God. Yeah. And, and the way I'm looking at it, I think we rely on social media so much these days, and you just see so much on social media. So I think just thinking in silence as far as social media, I want, to, I want it to be more practical where I'm influencing and impacting, like, personal lives, you know. And as far as I think, and I have posted some stuff on social media about it, but I think mm-hmm. it's easy to become like a hashtag hero and, oh, right. I posted that, so I've done my thing. And it's it's got to be right. more than that. It's got to be, right. what am I practically doing every day to make this better and to make this more like Christ would want it, like how we live together? Mm-hmm. So while I think right. social media can be important to kind of get some ideas out there, I think it has to be so much deeper than just... Oh, I posted some memes, and you know, I'm, I've done my thing. It's got to be something deeper that you're, cha- like you said, like you get to you get with God, and you're like, how can I, what can I do each day? What do you want me to do each right. day to really change things? So, yeah. right, exactly. And I believe that if you really ask the Lord, and I assume we're talking to mostly a Christian audience, yeah, <laughs> uh, mostly a a Christian group, that if you really ask God, I believe that he will He will allow those set of circumstances or situation to come your way if you really ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we teach 11th and 12th grade juniors and seniors in our Sunday school class, and lately we've been doing that via Zoom, but we are just, you know, really dealing with that's where they get most of their information these days. Uh, yeah. They really, right. they don't watch the news and, and that can be, have its own set of problems as well. But if they are not really talking to someone who is well informed, they're, they're just kind of a mess and all over the board and they don't, you know, they don't really have a direction either. So, you know, it's pretty hard for us as the adults in the room to navigate the information and misinformation that's out there on social media, especially to the younger generation where that's really their major intake of information. Exactly. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. So, okay. To wrap this up, both of our families, as we've discussed, have ties to Oklahoma state. So, you know, what's been (laughs) happening there with gun, with Gundy and uh, Chuba so what do you think about that? Right. What do you think about that recent well, situation? Uh, right. Well, like you said, uh, I am an OU fan. <laughs> I have been for as long as I can remember, as was my dad. So I'm looking through crimson and cream-colored glasses. <laughs> so, so any bedlam that happens in Stillwater is great for us. But no, I'm kidding. Um, I think, yeah. seriously, uh, Chuba Hubbard, I think, has a right to say what he said. I do think that he should have confronted Mike Gundy privately first. Yeah. But I think he's acknowledged that himself. Uh, I think that um, I do stand behind Mike Gundy's freedom of expression to wear whatever he wants to wear. Uh, if he wants to wear an offensive shirt, then that's fine. Let him. It's a free country. Uh, it didn't seem to me, though, that uh, Mike really, I don't know, connected the 
potential harm or danger he would get by wearing the shirt and it being seen. So maybe there's a certain amount of naivete, yeah. just not knowing. I don't know. So I think that kind of plays into it. I know if I were to wear a MAGA hat, I know ahead of time that what I might face, I might face definitely some black people who wouldn't like that. Yeah. And I might face some white people who wouldn't like that. <laughs> right. So I still think that I have the right to wear that hat, but I just probably wouldn't, not because I'm a Trump hater or anything like that. I just probably wouldn't. Yeah. Um, because I believe in discipline, respect, and good order, I'm still a bit stunned that to me it seems like the players are running the narratives and they're calling the plays, so to speak, and especially in this situation, it almost seems like uh, Chuba is the, the, I guess, senior and uh, Coach Gundy is the warden almost. Yeah. Like he's the coach and Coach Gundy is the player, which is a, a, a situation of roles being reversed. Uh, but it seems to me that there might have been some other previous racial issues, maybe private, that we don't know about, that maybe led to this, because I noted that other players had mentioned that uh, they're really going to be watching Gundy from now on. So I don't know. You know, a lot of that stuff is kept in-house anyway. You don't want it to get into the media. Yeah. I don't think Mike Gundy's groveling, I'll call it groveling to Chuba, was a good look. Uh, he did say, what was it, uh, 10, 12, 13 years ago, he said that he was a man and he was 40 years old and, you know, he had the tirade. Yeah, that famous uh, clip you can find on YouTube. Press conference. Yeah. yeah, so I thought about that then, and it seemed like to me, I hate to say that Chuba almost punked him, but it seemed like he got kind of punked. Yeah. Um, he just, I, you know, I, I assume, I know there's been some calls for him to resign and such. I uh, don't know where that's going to go, uh, but that's kind of my opinion. But I'm always happy to see Bedlam and Stillwater. <laughs> well, and just, <laughs> well, even to just give some people that might not know the whole story, Coach Gundy is the football coach, the head football coach. Right. He wore a shirt. I think he was on a fishing trip or something. And right. He, he wore a shirt for a really like far right news organization. Mm-hmm. And right. Of course, espousing some things that Chuba is probably like, man, why would you wear that shirt? So that's kind of where that came from. And right. yeah, I can kind of see it both ways like you. It's like Gundy is the leader. He can't just wear any shirt he wants to. If you're the leader, you've got to think about who you're leading. And right, right. you've got to be a little more perceptive and think a little deeper of, man, if I wore this shirt, what, what, what are people going to think? It's just like Paul talks about uh-huh. in scriptures. It's like, I can do whatever. We're allowed to do whatever we want, but what is beneficial to others? Mm-hmm. So right, exactly. And it's interesting. I thought of it that way. Just as Gundy being the leader, he's got to think about who he's leading. But it's also uh-huh. interesting that you mentioned that you didn't really like how Gundy kind of came off as not the coach, like not the leader. So, right, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting situation. And it would be interesting, instead of just firing him and moving on, it would be cool to me to see them work this out and see how they can move forward and really make this a better situation. Yeah. Instead of just saying, okay, right. you're gone, you know. Right. 
Well, sure. just as long as the Sooners beat the Cowboys. <laughs> well, we probably know that's going to happen anyways. So. You might not know this, Larry. I, I don't know if I told you this or not, but my dad's big OU fan, and my grandmother actually was a professor there for a period of time. Yeah. And Bless their hearts. <laughs> <laughs> so when we took He my, likes them better now. Right. We yeah. took my parents to a Bedlam game in Stillwater, and my dad had on a, a shirt that was a grandpa-divided shirt, you know, had Oklahoma half crimson, half orange. And then he right. had two hats. He had his Oklahoma State hat and he had his OU hat. And anytime the football field was on the field, he had his OU hat on. But anytime the band, because our oldest son marches in the band, anytime he was around our son Drew or the band was on the field, he had on his OSU hat. So the people oh, behind us were funny. the people behind us were quite confused uh, as to what he was uh, doing, but it was quite comical wow. to watch him walk the wow, line. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> Dedication to both his team and his family. <laughs> right. Sometimes you have to do that. House divided. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So I was wondering, I'm kind of just throwing out a question now. Are there any books you would recommend for people to read to that you've read that have helped you? You know, think about uh, this. Uh, I think The Color of Money yeah. is a good book. Uh, I forgot the name of the author. Mercer, it's called The Color of Money. Yeah. I think that's a good book to read. I've been told that White Fragility is a good book to read. I haven't read it myself, but several people have suggested that I read that. Yeah. And at some point in time, I think I'm going to get that. Those two come to mind. I'm trying to think others that might come to mind. Uh, there are a couple of others, but those are the two right now that come to mind quickest. Okay. But yeah, I think that um, you know, reading is is reading is fundamental, obviously. But <laughs> reading is something that I think can potentially affect the heart, and I think that's what needs to happen. Hearts needs to be. Mm-hmm. changed. Yeah. need to be changed. And really, it's partly like I talked about, instead of just getting all our information on social media, if, if you get a book in your hands or on Kindle, it's ma- it forces you to think deeper about it. Mm-hmm. And right. it, it exactly. forces you to learn some things exactly. about it. And another book I right. read, uh, Under Our Skin by Benjamin Watson. I don't know if you've read that. I have not. Yeah, I've read that, and then we're going to also go through that with our juniors and seniors, yeah. so they can uh-huh. kind right. of experience that book. So. Yeah. Just wanted to get some resources out there that people can get in their hands and right. and really and really think more about this. So. Right, and I think it's also always good to read the Holy Bible. Oh yeah, that's the first one we should be <laughs> At reading. At the end of the day, right? You know, we don't know where all of this is headed. Right. We don't know why we have a COVID nineteen. We don't know why a lot of things is happening, but He knows, and we just have to trust that He knows. And a lot of times, we're not going to have the answers. Right. But I believe that. The foundation of the answers are definitely there. Yeah, and as believers, I think it's important that we lead with Christ and we don't lead with our politics. Mm. Exactly. And exactly. Because I think that more than anything, that can change hearts more than any policy we can come up with. You two are about to preach a sermon. <laughs> We're just getting <laughs> started. <laughs> just getting started. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Larry, we so appreciate your wisdom and your kindness to come on here and share with us and your openness. Again, I am forever thankful for your friendship to my husband. And I, I just love watching you two get to chat it up and hear everything that he has to say that you're talking about. So I appreciate you. We appreciate you. Well, Thank the- the pleasure is all mine. I appreciate both of you all so much. I really do. And thank you for allowing me to uh, speak on some of these issues. Yeah, we yeah, that's appreciate great. it. And when this, when quarantine is relaxed, we need to have dinner again. That's so. right. I'll definitely look forward to that. Yeah, <laughs> we need to do that. So. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. You all have a good evening. Okay, you too. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. 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 Man, what a great, open, and honest conversation. I really enjoyed that. I did too. It's given me a lot to think about, and I hope it's given our listening audience a lot to think about too. It's just so awesome that we get a chance to do this kind of stuff. I love it. I do too. If you haven't already, like and subscribe to our podcast. And if you love it, leave a review. Party, party of five and a half, over and out. We'll see you next time.